And I'm just going to read the passage that he is going to be speaking on. So if you have a Bible with you, we're actually going to uh, go back a, a couple of verses. Starting at chapter 5, verse 20. This picks up maybe, Bob, a comment in your prayer. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our heart to you. We are not withholding our affections from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temples of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Lord, I pray for Steve as he comes to explore this passage, which I know that he's been studying all week. Um, It's got important things to say and maybe difficult things for us to understand. But I commend Steve to you, Lord, and I ask that you guide him and you open our hearts, ears and minds to what he has to say. In Jesus' name.
Well, today is uh, Father's Day, and um, I'm so grateful for having had a great dad. Uh, he passed away about nine years ago now, but as a child, he was very much my hero. And uh, looking back on my younger years, he, he taught me many things, and he instilled in me uh, a real love for sport, uh, especially football. And I know that that will surprise uh, some of you here because uh, of my passion for rugby, but that came uh, a little bit later on. But the best gift that I had as a child, uh, it was a gift that my father entrusted to me, uh, and it was, his fo- it was a football, it was his football. And it was one of those old-style uh, laced leather balls. Do you remember those, Alan? Yes. Uh, you, you know, when they used to get full of water and mud and you used to head them, it used to be like heading a medicine ball in those days. Nothing like these plastic-coated new balls that you get these days. But this leather ball was um, very much uh, full of a, a number of patches where the stitches had come loose. And uh, in those days, you didn't throw stuff away. You just mended it. And this old ball that uh, my father gave to me I'd say, which had been his football. Uh, I'd had many visits to the cobblers who had sewed it back together and many patches. And when I carried this ball into my local Bonamine Park, I was a lad who felt 10 foot high. I was the bee's knees. No other boy in the district had a leather football. And to be entrusted with such a valuable item was absolutely amazing. I guarded it with my life. But I suppose that the only real value to this tattered old ball was sentimental value. It wasn't the only thing that my father entrusted to me. My father entrusted to me his car so that Julie and I could go off on honeymoon. Brave man. It was a yellow Morris Marina, 1800. My car, a Vauxhall Chevette, in metallic green with those snazzy, sporty <laughs> stripes along, a little bit like, you know, the car in Dukes of Hazard. My car had just broken down a few days before Julie and I got married. And uh, apart from getting from Swansea, where we, got, where we got married, to Cornwall in about 46 minutes, it wasn't actually 46 minutes. I think that we probably broke all the speed restrictions, though, as newlyweds. But I won't go any more into that. <laughs> I'm digging a hole for myself, and my daughter's sitting on the front row. Embarrassment. Yes, she's looking at the floor. I treated this car that my father had entrusted to me with utmost respect throughout the week. And I made sure, uh, you know, where I park it, parked it and where I didn't park it, I didn't want to get scratched or dented in any way. And I was far more watchful over my father's car that he'd entrusted to me than my own. And I've been entrusted with many things in my life, special tasks, responsibilities. I've been entrusted with items, some valuable, some of sentimental value. And I'm sure you have too. But the point I'm getting at this morning is that Father God has entrusted to every Christian a very special responsibility. That we have been entrusted with what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul tells us in chapter 5, 
that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. That once we were estranged, we were separated, we were apart from God because of the barrier of sin. But now because of Jesus, we have been reconciled, restored, reunited and we are now in a right relationship with God. Through Jesus who became our sin offering. And we are told that this reconciliation that we have received through Christ isn't only for us, but it's for everyone. And we have been entrusted to pass that on, which Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. No one else can do it. God hasn't called the angels to do it. But it is our special responsibility and it is our privilege. And Paul concludes chapter 5 by saying that we Christians are Christ's ambassadors and that God is making his appeal to this world through us. An ambassador as we know is a high ranking uh, civil servant who has been chosen carefully to represent queen and country both in what they say and the way they say it, the way that they act. So when Paul says that we Christians are Christ's ambassadors he is saying that we represent Christ, that we speak in his name, almost as if God was speaking himself directly through us. Incredible, isn't it? This is astonishing. You know, this is so special. What a high calling this is. You know, the God, the maker of heavens and earth, the God who flung the stars into space, the God who, who sent his son into this world, makes his appeal to other human beings through us that he's got no plan B. No wonder Paul continues at the beginning of chapter 6 with a challenge to Christians. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 6, if you've not got your Bibles. I've put it up on screen. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. And what Paul is saying here is since God has given us so much... Since God has reconciled us with himself and restored that broken relationship through Christ, let us not ignore or squander God's grace. So why does Paul write this? Why does he even suggest that? I think it's because he, he knows what we're all like. You know, as we this morning look into our own hearts, and if we're true to ourselves, we know that we fluctuate between being uh, hot and cold between being spiritually passionate and spiritually lethargic. And sometimes the way that we just allow the trivia of life to take control. But if you look at Paul's words here, they're words of urgency. He says, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. In the New Living Translate, Translation, he says, we beg you not to accept this marvellous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. <coughs> you see... When a person truly understands God's grace to them, truly understands what God has done for them through Jesus, the most natural response to that grace is to love Jesus and to serve Jesus and to honour Jesus with everything that we have and to live for Jesus and to tell others about Jesus. But the problem is that we're also good, full of good intentions, aren't we? I will serve Jesus when, and then we, you know, fill in the blanks yourself. And 
we can come out with many excuses for not serving Jesus right now or not putting our lives right with Jesus right now. There's always a better and more convenient time. But Paul says to the Corinthians and to us in verse 2, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. And for Paul, it's always a now. It's not a tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Let's make the most of every opportunity now. And Paul is saying to them, don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Carpe diem, seize the day. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. And I would say this morning that if you're a person in this building this morning who has not experienced the love of God, I would say that what I'm saying right now is so much for you. Inviting Jesus into your life is the greatest, most wonderful decision that you will ever make. Maybe there are others who are listening to this on podcast this morning. The same applies. Don't think that you need to become more respectable to tidy up your life first. Because when you invite Jesus in, he helps you do that with his strength and ability. Don't think that you need all your questions answered. Yeah, I think questions of the Christian faith are absolutely wonderful to have those questions answered. That's, that, that's great. And God doesn't expect us to throw our brains away. But don't expect to have every question answered. I've been a Christian now this year 40 years. And I still have questions. <laughs> They're different to the questions I had 40 years ago. But I still have questions. Dan gave us a, a great talk last week on the, the way that Paul motivated the Corinthians in evangelism. And, uh, and he quoted these verses from uh, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. I'll put them up on screen for you. And he reminded the Corinthians that one day that they will stand before Christ, as, as we all will, and give an account of their lives. You see, the thought of standing before Jesus was a huge motivation for Paul to actually proclaim the message. And I was thinking about that this week, and uh, I remember about six years ago, I was required to stand and, uh, and, and defend my, my research thesis. I was doing uh, some doctoral work, and I had to present this thesis of 92,000 words before a panel of academics at Bangor University. And I presented my work to them a couple of months before that time, uh, this oral exam or viva, which was enough time for them to read through it and find any gaps or any holes in in, in my research work. And even before I signed up for that degree, I knew that right at the very end of it, there was going to be this viva, this oral exam. And to tell you the truth, it remained in my thinking for the whole three years. And there were many a night I would wake up in a cold sweat, thinking, oh my word, it's getting closer. And all I can say is that it actually motivated me to study when I just felt like going out for walks with Julie or just relaxing and sitting in front of the television. And it motivated me to buy yet another expensive academic book when I could have used my cash elsewhere. The fear of one day having to defend my work before people who were far cleverer than me, who could easily find holes in my work if there were holes there, really concentrated my thinking. I must be honest with you. I feared that I'd be found wanting, that I'd be filled with regret 
of the time and the money that this caused. And I'm not ashamed to say, I feared failure. Now Paul himself here was motivated by this day of evaluation standing before Jesus. But in chapter 5 verse 14, he provides another even greater motivation. You may say, well, what greater motivation could there possibly be than one day having to stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives? Well, the greater motivation is found in verse 14, where he says, For Christ's love compels us. In other words, when we think of the cross, when we think of all that Christ has done for us, such love will compel us. I like the way that the message puts it. Christ's love has moved us to such extremes. So Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians, are you moved enough by the cross to tell your friends about Jesus? Are you moved enough by the cross to tell your friends about Jesus? What an incredible question. You know, we can come to church on a Sunday, we can share communion, we can share the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, We can sing great words of great songs about the cross as we've been doing this morning. We can be there, lost in wonder, love and praise with our hands raised. But Paul's question here is basically, are you moved enough by the cross to tell your friends about Jesus? What a question. You see, in verse 1, Paul challenges the Corinthians not to receive God's grace in vain. And that's remarkably similar for those of you that know your way around the New Testament of something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me put the words up on screen for you. Paul is talking about himself. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So let's just focus on these words for a few moments. Paul is saying here that he's overwhelmed that God could possibly ever love someone like him. And I've met many, many people who say almost the same as that. They've said to me, you know, people don't know what I'm like. God knows what I'm like. And you're telling me that he still loves me. How can that be? And people are astonished and they're overwhelmed by that fact. And you see, Paul felt that he didn't deserve anything from God. And he was right. He didn't deserve anything from God. But neither do we. And if we did, it wouldn't be grace. He was a man who persecuted the earliest Christians. He went out of his way to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth. He wanted to do away with all Christians. Doesn't that remind you of the story of John Newton, which was so similar? John Newton, an evil slave trader. A ship's captain who became very rich on other people's suffering and misery. He was a vile man who came to faith after nearly losing his life when his ship capsized off the coast of Ireland. And his own testimony is found in that great hymn that we love singing here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now am found, was blind but now I see. And Paul says here, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul's new transformed life had nothing at all to do with him. It had everything to do with God. It was grace. It was God's unmerited, unconditional, 
undeserved love that reached down to Paul. Not only when Paul was not looking for God, but when he was actively fighting against him. I know that we've come across this uh, phrase many, many times in this church, that God's grace means that there is nothing that we can ever do to cause God to love us more than he does. And there is nothing that we can ever do to cause God to love us less than what he does. And that's grace. God loves us because he loves us. God loves us because he is love. That's who he is. And since he's love, he cannot do anything which is unloving. And he can never cease to be love. And his love never diminishes or fades. And nothing or no one can ever separate us from that love. And as Paul writes here, And his grace to me was not without effect. Which is almost exactly what he is telling the Corinthians here in verse 1. He said, No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's really important what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, There is always a response to God's grace. In other words, when we understand truly, fully, what God has done for us through Christ, there is always a human response to that. It changes everything. We're a new creation. We have a new life. We have a new perspective. We have a new heart. We have new eyes to see God, to see ourselves, to see the world around us. But Paul is saying here that grace to him was not without effect. Sorry about the double negative there. Blame Paul on that one. But what he is essentially saying is, I'm not about to let this grace that I've received from you go waste. And that's what he's urging the Corinthians to do in verse 1. He says, I urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Don't accept this wonderful gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. You see, God didn't pour out his grace on us through Christ just so that we would get to heaven one day. But between now and then for us to live insular, selfish lives, lives which focus on our needs alone. No. Rather, he has poured out his grace on our lives that we should be his ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, reaching out to people who don't know him. And Paul says, I worked harder than all of them. Who's he talking about here? The apostles. And before we point the finger and accuse him of being big-headed and arrogant, saying such a thing, he quickly adds, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In other words, it wasn't only the grace of God that motivated Paul to serve Jesus, but it was also the grace of God that enabled him to serve Jesus and to fulfill the commission. Right. If we're going to be effective in persuading others, because that's the theme of what Paul is talking about here, then they need not only hear the message, but they also need to be convinced by the messenger. And sometimes the messenger gets in the way of the message. There might not be anything at all wrong with the message, and there's certainly nothing wrong with God's message. But it's, impossible, but it's possible to invalidate the message through the messenger. And therefore it's important to walk our talk. Verse 3. Paul says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path. 
so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In the NLT, it puts it even plainer that he says that we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. It's very, very important, isn't it, you know, that our actions as Christians match our words. And if I, I've come across many people who have um, made the flawed behavior of Christians their excuse for not believing themselves, for not accepting the, the Christian faith. And they say, if, if that's Christianity, then you can count me out. And then Paul provides us with a, with a whole list of the way that he has lived proving to the Corinthian church that he wasn't discrediting his message at all. Let me just put this up on screen for you. Verse 4 to 10. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and on the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. And in this list, you know, it'll take us a month of Sundays to go through all of that, so I'm just going to try to summarize it a little bit and just tell us what Paul is saying there. First of all, he's saying, He's speaking about those things that happen to us as Christians that happen to just about everyone. In verse 4, he speaks of troubles, hardship, and distresses. Now, I've said to you before many occasions, I think, that um, just because we are Christians, it doesn't mean that we're exempt from the troubles and the hardships of life. You know, when we became Christians, God didn't wrap us up in cotton wool and said, you know, nothing is bad is ever going to happen to you again. And just like those who are not Christians, Christians will suffer poverty and illness, unemployment, sudden bereavement, heartache. But what Paul seems to be saying is that all of these things that we experience can be wonderful opportunities for the light of God to shine through into people's lives. The second thing that he says here, he speaks of those things which happen because we are Christians. Verse 5 such things as beatings, imprisonments, and riots. And then he goes on to speak of the way that he's been dishonored and slandered and maligned and beaten, and that he was poor. Did you know that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, with more than 90,000 killed in 2016 because of their faith? Just look at that for a moment that's on screen before you just move on. That means that one brother or sister in Christ is martyred for his or her faith every six minutes. When the time that we have met this morning as a church, for the hour and a half that we meet here, that means that during that time, 15 other fellow believers have gone to heaven because they've been killed for their faith. Now, see, Paul had not suffered before he became a Christian. In fact, if you look into his background, he lived quite a privileged life. But his suffering started when he became a Christian. 
And if you read the story in Acts chapter 9, we're told how Paul came to faith, how Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road. And then in a vision, Jesus told a believer called Ananias to go to Damascus to meet with Paul. Now, given Paul's reputation for persecuting Christians, Ananias wasn't best pleased with that instruction. You can imagine that, can't you? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. So Paul knew up front that this commission that he had been given from Jesus wasn't going to be easy. That he would suffer for Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians we get a real sense of this. There's a whole account, number of accounts of the way that um, uh, Paul tells us he'd suffered. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he went as far as saying... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be what? Persecuted. My word. It's funny, I never see that verse on too many fridge magnets. Nor do I see it created as a, face, as, as a verse image on Facebook. And for that matter, neither do I hear it from too, many lips, from, too often from the lips of evangelists. And yet this is the reality of the majority of Christians in the world. And I believe that in years ahead, there will be a far greater cost to being a Christian in the United Kingdom. I believe there will be a time when churches will no longer be central in their communities. And that Christians will be regarded as some kind of minority sect. And I believe that Christians will be penalized for being Christians. And there will be certain employments which will not be open to them any longer. And during that time, the church will get smaller. But it will also become healthier. And I don't say this as some kind of prophetic word this morning. I say this because of historical precedent. Think, for example, of the church in China. In 1949, when the Communist Party uh, seized power in China, they sent all the foreign missionaries home and closed the churches, but there were roughly one million Protestants and three million Catholics there in 1949. Today, their own government statistics claim that there are 70 million Protestants and 12 million Catholics. And if you include all the unofficial house churches, then probably the true number of Protestant Christians is close to 100 million in China. Now, the Church of China was persecuted, and it got smaller, and it got healthier. And guess what happens to healthy churches? A bit like healthy children. They grow. And I believe that in recent years we have seen the first fruits of how it would become for Christians in the UK in the future. I was saddened this week to, over the resignation of Tim Farron, the Liberal Democrat leader. Tim, I know, is, is, is a fellow believer. He's, he's a good man. 
And whilst we might not all agree on his political views, or even, for that matter, uh, his views on various faith issues, it was a sad day indeed to see him forced to resign because he was a Christian. In a democratic society where freedom of speech is praised and where there appears to be tolerance for every view under the sun except the Christian worldview. You see, an intolerant society forced Tim Farron to pick which master he was going to follow. I think he chose wisely, don't you? And the one thing I can say, that as all Tim Farron was persecuted for his faith, he continued to act with grace and he acted honourably. I quoted in this month's newsletter that life is 10% of what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. And I think that the most important choice that we have of all in life is the choice of our attitudes. And Paul did not allow wrong attitudes to get in the way of his testimony. And from these verses that we're looking at, verses 4 to 10, we can see that he responded to persecution with love. He endured trials with amazing patience. He treated those who slandered him with, with kindness and to those who persecuted him with forgiveness. And he was beaten up, but he praised God that he wasn't killed. He knew heartache, but he also knew God's joy in the midst of pain. He was poor, yet he didn't worry him at all because he knew that he was rich spiritually. And as I said earlier, sometimes the messenger can get in the way of his message, but not Paul. He was amazingly resilient and positive. He's the sort of person who could go after Moby Dick in a rowing boat, taking the tartar sauce with him. And that's the sort of guy that he was. You see, the world watches on how Christians deal with trials and troubles and persecution. Do we deal with them in the ways of the world? Or do we respond to them in the weapons of righteousness that Paul speaks about in this passage? What are the weapons of righteousness? Well, they're goodness, kindness, forgiveness, patience, joy, love. In verse 11 to 13, Paul reveals how brokenhearted he was. He suffered, he struggled, he sacrificed for them. But there was no lack of love on his behalf, on, on his behalf, on his part rather. But they had not reciprocated. Why was that? Why didn't the Corinthians do that? Surely they would have only known about Christ because of Paul. Surely they owed their own lives to him. And the answer to that is, is false teachers who had infiltrated the church and they polluted the minds and the hearts of these Corinthian believers and the new the New Living Translation brings out the tenderness of Paul's words here in verses 11 to 13. Let me read them to you. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honest with, honestly with you and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. And then in verse 14, he continues by saying, don't team up with those who are unbelievers, which is exactly what they were doing. They were taking sides against Paul. Now, the New International Version uh, speaks of it in this way. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Or 
in the King James Version, it speaks of being unequally yoked. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What on earth does that mean? The idea is taken from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 22, verse 10, where God gives the, com- gives the command, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoke together. Now, you might think that's a bit of a strange verse. Why on earth should God be interested in such matters? Hasn't God got enough going on in the world to keep him busy? Why does he need to be bothered by which animals do the plowing together? Well, let me explain. As you can see from the photograph on screen, the yoke was a great big wooden crossbeam that was used to hold two animals together. And that, uh, that is so that they would actually plow in the same direction. If you had a large ox and a, a smaller donkey, then the smaller animal would uh, move more slowly than the larger one, causing them to go in circles, to plow in circles. But the yoke, or rather the yoke between these unequal animals, would, would, would cut and they would damage them both. So this was an early law that protected animals from cruelty, okay? But as we all know, Paul wasn't talking about oxen and donkeys here. He was using this as an illustration of the relationship between the Corinthian believers and unbelievers. And being unequally yoked meant that they were at odds with each other. And he goes on to say that uh, they were opposites, just like righteousness and wickedness, or light and dark, or Christ and Satan, or the temple of God and idols. And Paul was saying that the Corinthian Christians were fundamentally incompatible with their false teachers. But I know the question you're asking is the question that I'm asking. What on all? What what is this teaching got to do with us today? What's Paul telling us? Is he suggesting that we should not have anything to do with unbelievers? Of course not. On a previous occasion, he had written to the Corinthian church, saying that they should not associate with sexually immoral people. But they misunderstood him, because they thought that Paul was saying, "Don't be associated with anybody." who's sexually immoral. And Paul wasn't saying that at all. In fact, Paul replies in 1 Corinthians 5, well, don't be so daft. Well, this is the SJ version of the New Testament. (laughs) You'd have to leave the world in order to disassociate with everybody who is sinning sexually. And Paul says it's not his responsibility, and it shouldn't be the church's responsibility, then or now, to speak about people who are not Christians. That is now a problem. So what about marriage then? Should people who are already married get a divorce if one of them becomes a Christian? And the answer again is, no way, Jose. Again, the SJ version of the New Testament. And Paul says, if a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, He must not leave her. And the same goes for Christian wives. Find that in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15. Well, was he then talking about social contact and fellowship between people who weren't believers and Christians? Maybe the other people were from different faiths. And this was a real issue amongst the Corinthian Christians. 
because they lived in a very idolatrous society where a neighbor might, in his front room, have a dozen different idols. And if you were invited for an evening meal with one of your neighbors, and the neighbor starts off by giving a toast to the various idols or the gods in that room, what were they to do? And Paul writes into this, and essentially he says, enjoy the meal. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 27. Okay, well, what was it then? Were unbelievers forbidden to attend Christian gatherings? Again, no. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 22 to 25, that unbelievers were often in attendance at Christian meetings. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, in context, he was actually referring to people who were actively working against the Christian faith. But how does that apply to us today? I think that we need to guard against two extremes here. The first extreme is to isolate ourselves from anyone who is an unbeliever. When I was a brand new Christian, I heard verse 17 quoted to me on many occasions by older, well-meaning, I'm sure, Christians who wanted younger baby Christians like me to stay on the straight and narrow. And they normally quoted this verse in verse 17 from the King James Version of the Bible, which seemed to give it an extra edge of authority. I don't know. Come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord. And then we were told all the places that we couldn't go and the things that we couldn't do. And the idea was that Christians should isolate themselves from the world. And basically form a nice holy huddle of people who ever only did church together in Bible studies and prayer meetings. And that kind of legalistic attitude was both unhelpful and it was unhealthy. You get that. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't go to the other extreme as well. And the other extreme is where Christians are so integrated in secular society that you would find it hard to say who's the Christian and who's not. You know, let's get balance here. And we need, to, we need both of these things. You know, I think that what I was brought up with when I first became a Christian was wrong. But we need to make sure that we've not fallen off the cliff, the other, the, the other end of the cliff. There's an old saying that the boat needs to be in the water, but when water gets in the boat, you're in trouble. And a Christian needs to be in the world. But when the world, uh, in the sense, the, the ideology, that's what I'm talking about, not people, get in, get in our minds and hearts, then we're in the wrong place. And I think it would be, oh, time is gone. It would be so wrong for me this morning to ignore the principle of being unequally yoked in that it, it has some application as well in other, in other things like business and in our relationships. I know that some people who have gone into business with a Christian, with, sorry, with a business partner who wasn't a Christian. Sometimes it's worked well, but not always. And I've heard some stories of unbelieving business partners who had fewer scruples about the occasional shady deal or under-counter transaction, as they say, or not putting things through the books so that a taxman doesn't get his share. You see, as, as a church and as a Christian chari charity with a manor house, 
we have chosen not to do cash-only transactions. For example, a window cleaner who was touting for business said a little while ago that he would give us £10 off if we would pay him in cash. And the only reason he wanted to be paid in cash so that he could fiddle his tax returns. We're not happy with that. And that was an easy decision because we're a church. We are a Christian charity. No problem there. We know what was, what was happening, so we decided against it. Easy decision to make. But if you have a partner, business partner, who's a little bit of an Arthur Daly, perhaps, or a Dell boy at heart, or at the very least doesn't have the same ethical compass as we have, then we should have problems. We can have real problems there. Okay, what about marriage then? Between unbelievers and believers. Well, according to Paul, the same principle applies. I know that uh, some people say that opposites attract. But that's true in science. When Do you remember those times in the physics lab when you get the magnets out? Opposites attract. Maybe in science, maybe in magnetism, but not in relationships necessarily. Maybe a better proverb would be, birds of a feather flock together. You said there have been recent studies con um, conducted by the University of Kansas and by others that people are more likely to be attractive to and pursue romantic relationships with individuals who are more like themselves across a broad range of personal characteristics, including age, religion, political orientation, and certain aspects of intelligence. And I'd go actually further than that. Being in a different place spiritually isn't the same as having different views on hobbies or which football team you support or which rugby team you support. You know, Julie supports Hanethi Scarlets, all right? I support their arch rivals, their enemies, the Ospreys. Now, you know, you don't understand Welsh rugby, I know that. I realise you're not that cultured, so let me put it very, very easy for you. It's like having a blues season ticket holder being married to a lifelong Villa fan. How do you think about that, Dot? Terrible. Terrible, exactly. <laughs> okay. You see, married couples will have different opinions on all sorts of things, like the sports team you, you support, or the, the color that you, you know, schemes of your home, or the foods that you like, or what's the perfect holiday. But let's be honest, all of those things are secondary, of secondary importance. They're areas of give and take in marriage. But the question of submitting one's life to Jesus is of a different order. That's not of secondary importance. That's of primary importance. And when a person becomes a Christian, the person's whole life and outlook are changed. And a marriage to someone who is not a Christian can produce clashes on so many things. Ambitions. The use of time and money. Ethical actions. On the way that Sunday is observed. On the use of the home. On the way the children are brought up. You see, the Christian will be guided by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. The spouse will be guided by personal opinions. Do you know what? It's even deeper than that. 
the unbelieving person in the marriage might be kind, <coughs> generous, good-looking, happy for his or her spouse to keep attending church, be very willing for the kids to be brought up in church to have a Christian upbringing, but on a more intimate level, there is a missing dimension in marriage. And I've spoken to many Christians over many years whose husband or wife don't share their faith. And they find it heartbreaking. For the one person, Jesus, who is central in their lives, central in their thinking, central in their ambitions, the one person who has won their hearts, has no place in the heart of the unbelieving husband or wife. Being unequally yoked has put great strain. Going back to the original illustration of both the donkey and the oxen. They are different breeds. So what advice do I give to you today? <coughs> and time has gone, I'm afraid. My advice probably could be best summed up in the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, put Jesus first. Prioritize him, and he will direct your paths and straighten your ways. My word, that was a lot to get through this morning. Uh, passage, lots of big questions there. <coughs> questions we need to take away with us this morning. Have you received God's grace in vain? Oh my word, that's a question, isn't it? It's a question I don't think that we could just answer there and then. I think that's one we need to pray through and work through this week, maybe when we're on our own with an open Bible and an open heart. Have we received God's grace in vain? Secondly, are we living our Christian lives in a way that causes others to stumble? <coughs> you see, is our conduct a contradiction of our message? You've heard me say on many occasions before that if you were convicted in a court of law for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And thirdly, are we yoked with Christ? Does he have priority in our lives? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray together. Guys, if you'd like to come back. Thanks. Lord, we know that you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we just pray now, Lord, that you will help us put you first in our lives. Amen.